Well, here we go. Thank you, everyone, for uh, attending and welcome, and welcome to Matthew Skelton and uh, Manuel Pais. They're the authors of Team Topologies, and they've been working for a long time with clients who have had challenges in working with multiple teams on software. So, welcome to the show, both of you. And before we jump into, you know, kind of deeper topics, can you tell us about the four team types and interaction modes of team topologies, the three interaction modes? Sure. Uh, Matthew here. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Um, so when Manuel and I were working with some of our customers over the years, um, one of the things that we found was that lots of people found some aspects of software delivery quite challenging because the the group of people that they were kind of bit, the bit that they were working with their team, if you like, or, or the, that group, it, it was kind of ambiguous to them, the purpose of the, that group or team. It was, it was ambiguous. What the, what the, um, how that, how that team should interact with other teams. Um, and this caused an awful, quite a lot of challenges. It, quite, it caused lots of, um, sort of disengagement from people. Um, it made, it actually made the kind of responsibility boundaries quite ambiguous and fluid. Um, and that often we saw tended to result in problems around integration, problems around, um, clarity of purpose in the software. So reflected from the, from the, from the lack of clarity of purpose in the, in, in the, in the teams. So one thing we wanted to do with our book was to, um, try and identify the smallest number of different types of team that would be, that would be needed. Uh, from for building and running modern software systems, and that's what we came up with: four types of team. Um, and our starting point is what we call uh, a stream-aligned team. This is a team that's aligned to a stream of change. We chose that name. It's not a particularly pretty name, but it, we chose that name because it's it's the most it's it's the name that's kind of most accurate and and applicable across multiple different contexts. Um, and it emphasizes the fact that, that we, we should be aligning to a stream of change and, and because there's a sense of flow, uh, embedded in the, in that name. And that's kind of really important, uh, for, 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 for the, in the book. Uh, and this is our starting point. The streamlined team has end-to-end -end responsibility for a particular slice of the, uh, of the software they're working on. Um, typically this is aligned to like a kind of, a, a um, a business domain in a domain-driven design uh, terminology, but it could be aligned to something else. It's sometimes aligned to a user journey, sometimes aligned to a regulatory boundary, something like this. It's where we've got an ongoing flow of change needed from a business perspective, and this team is then aligned to that, and the work it does is, is, is aligned to that kind of sense of, of flow. This team has got all the skills they need to build and run a particular part of, a particular part of that software. And it's typically a mix of skills, typically what we call cross-functional, but it's, it's the exact skills in, in any one of these streamlined teams will depend on uh, what they're doing. Um, and that team has long-term responsibility for that particular part of the system. Maybe they look after one or two or maybe even three different um, services or products or whatever you want to call them. And that's our starting point. And the reason why that's, a, that's so fundamental is because there are no handoffs. There's no handoffs to other teams. And that then means that there's there's uh, one of the biggest impediments to a, a good flow in an organization is handing off to other teams. So we've removed that impediment 
and um, that team can then work on owning that service over a long period of time. Streamline team, that's our starting point. And really the other three team types that we have support that streamline team. We've got an enabling team. Enabling team is a group of experts who do not own any software, do not build any software themselves. They help streamline teams to um, bridge capability gaps, to understand new things, to migrate from one thing to another, to adopt new skills, whatever it might be. Um, and the enabling teams are looking across multiple different streamlined teams and spotting common problems. Um, but the interaction between the streamlined team and the enabling team is temporary. It only might last for a day or two or a few weeks. It's not permanent. So it, we avoid the uh, we avoid the situation where an enabling team becomes a kind of crutch or a dependency on the streamlined team. The purpose is to kind of keep that streamlined team decoupled, independent from other streamlined teams. We've also got the concept of a complicated subsystem team, which might be needed if there's some really awkward processing or calculation needed in part of the system that would otherwise increase a cognitive load on a streamlined team. It's not about shared component. That's not the driver for, create, for creating a complicated subsystem team. It's purely about kind of cognitive load and, and, and the, the level of skills needed. Typically something like, could be machine learning, it could be video processing, it could be transaction reconciliation, something where there's a lot of complicated logic and mathematics usually involved. But the driver for creating that kind of team or, and that subsystem is about limiting cognitive load on, on, on the other streamlined teams. So they can continue to have a fast flow of change. And then finally, our fourth type of team is called a platform team. It's really a group of teams um, as a platform. And, and this is a, the word platform is a bit awkward because it's got a bad reputation from the past. But, but a team topologies platform, or the, the kind of platform that we describe in team topologies, is actually very different from a lot of the platforms of the past, or the, the purpose is very different. The, the way in which you think about it is very different. Its primary purpose is to accelerate the flow of, of change, the flow of software delivery in the streamlined teams, partly by reducing the cognitive load on those teams. And that's really the, the primary purpose of that platform. It's not necessarily about shared services. It's not necessarily about license aggregation. It's not necessarily about any of the things that used to drive kind of platform adoption in the past. And it has a strong focus on developer experience. We tend to treat our internal colleagues as sort of like customers because, because we're building this platform as a kind of internal product. And so we, we reach out to them people from the platform reach out to these internal teams and um, understand what they need and only build things that actually are going to meet those needs. So we've got Streamline team as, as, the, as the fundamental building block, if you like, of, of, of how we do things. And these other three team types, enabling, complicated subsystem and platform team, kind of support that Streamline team, support that independence, support that limiting of cognitive load to enable a fast flow of change on an ongoing basis. And that definition around those four different kind of teams and the kind of criteria that we use are quite new in some respects, particularly with a focus on flow, the, the focus on keeping things autonomous, and crucially, focus on kind of limiting cognitive load. Uh, and, and that level of definition has brought something new, uh, as far as we can see, uh, based on what people tell us, it's brought something new to how people think about um, setting things up for effective software delivery. So Manuel, you can maybe talk through the interaction modes. Maybe, yes, you can have a break. Um, also, thanks, uh, Vaughn, for inviting us for, for the podcast. And just very briefly, going back to, to the, the idea of the why of, of these four types of teams and three interaction modes, um, we really should be looking at those as just um, building blocks, right? So it's not that you expect to 
decide how many of each type of teams we have and how should they uh, interact and then we're we're done right so a key aspect of the book team topo is also how do we use this sort of building blocks and uh, and much be- much better much more um clearly defined types of teams responsibilities of teams as well as how they interact to evolve right so maybe some of our um uh, one of our value streams maybe in the future is not no longer that valuable and we realize we need to to make changes um and so that's not a a, a critical or a core business domain anymore so that's that's kind of the whole idea that there's an aspect of sensing where we're where we're going and how do we kind of change uh, over time in an evolutionary way rather than uh now we're going to do this this big transformation and and then we think we're we're done so um specifically about the three interaction modes so once we have uh, more clarity on what type of, of teams we have um obviously still things um any kind of non trivial software and uh, delivery is going to require um interactions between teams right um and so we often what we've seen in the past is um kind of naive definitions of uh collaboration for example where uh we're saying well collaboration is always a good thing we should promote collaboration between everyone but that actually has a cost right so we've we've kind of um gave a more specific definition to collaboration that's one of the interaction modes and then there's also facilitating an access a service so collaboration is we have two teams working together for a, a defined period of time right so this might be couple of weeks or even just a couple of days with a very uh, clear purpose what are we trying to do here we're trying to um find you know a solution for a problem that uh, that that we have um so we're we have a, um kind of framing of what we expect to happen in this interaction and obviously sometimes things can go wrong or we didn't have enough time or you know we should have done something else before this collaboration and that's okay that's again the kind of the sensing part that we we thought this was the right um interaction but it turns out we, sh- we should have done something else um and then the second type of interaction is facilitating where this is uh very typical for enabling teams where they facilitate knowledge to the streamlined teams but it could also happen between two streamlined teams if you have one that is more experienced in some domain um helping a more junior or less experienced team So whenever one team is helping the other team kind of gain knowledge and understand uh, some domain that where they haven't had any much experience perhaps so that could be anything from test automation to um infrastructure as code or any not necessarily just engineering but product development any kind of domain where uh, one of the teams is is being facilitated so the other team the facilitators are like the enabling teams are acting in a sort of mentor role and by by teaching and helping um first of all understand what is that that other teams kind of uh, gaps where they are now and then providing adequate um sort of um experience of learning right so that's the facilitating and uh, finally access a service is very much like when uh similar to when we talk about um infrastructure as a service or platform as a service where 
one team provides one or more services in a way that uh, they can be consumed uh, in a self-service fashion without actually requiring the, t- the teams to have to um, communicate because we have um, a clearly established service. We have uh, a, a very good user experience, as Matthew was, was saying. We have uh, adequate documentation so that the other teams can consume this service um, sort of independently. Um, so that's very much like what you what you get from AWS or Google Cloud when you're using their services, right? You don't expect to talk directly to their engineers. They've done the work to um, make their services consumable by, by many uh, different uh, organizations and, and teams. Set of explanations there. I know we'll talk about DDD more in a little bit, but um, my kind of mapping of this to um, domain-driven design is sort of like each streamlined team is is probably like a team working on a bounded context and the enablers are kind of um, like the domain experts and uh, or well the um, the the complex uh, subdomain type people are are probably like the domain experts and I guess the platform people are maybe focusing on um, integration or something like that between the bounded it's, it's, context. It's more like possibly, but they're they're more like focusing on stuff which is not related to those bounded contexts, stuff which is not really kind of core. Uh, they might be focusing on things which are, you know, it's a, if it's if it's a an organization that focuses on selling, I don't know, selling pizzas, then um, you know, managing data and uh, certainly managing cloud infrastructure is not really very related to selling pizzas. So. In that sense, then, then some of that kind of stuff would be, would be we'd, we'd probably expect it to be in platform. Not necessarily. It, it, it's not always true. Sometimes a team working on the, you know, in, in a my account, um, bounded context or something, or working on the, the payments process might find it useful to retain within their remit the ability and, and, and the control to spin up their own cloud infrastructure. Because they need to go quickly, that might that might be their choice. That might be the right thing for that product, even though it's not strongly domain related. It's just at some point, it's something that's not strongly domain related is, is a typical candidate for 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 looking for a different home for it. Yeah, there, there, there was quite an interesting article from um, Alberto Brandolini uh, a few months ago where he was sort of comparing um, context mapping and team topologies and, and essentially. There's obviously a lot of kind of uh, similar ideas, and he was saying, well, domain-driven design comes more from the the system perspective, obviously, and uh, categorizing um, um, how do we break down system and and categorizing different parts of of systems, while team topologies comes from um, a team-centered perspective, right? So, but obviously, at some point, there is sort of a a mapping to some extent where you'd expect, as Matthew was saying, streamlined teams are working on on core subdomains um, and this sort of sort of um, things that so. But with team topologies, we're focusing on clarifying the, the different types of teams. But there's definitely a lot of um, overlap, and what we see with uh, clients that already have adopted domain-driven design or have tried to to uh, think from that perspective, for them, it's easier to then understand how team topologies fits in um, because 
obviously the the way we set up teams has an influence on systems that we're able to to create as you know Conway's law famously um says um and vice versa so it's quite interesting i find the 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 relationship between the manager and design and team topologies yeah cool and i think um too like you said the um complexity subsystem teams or complex subsystem teams aren't really about developing components or things like that. In fact, if they were domain experts, they they might not actually be able to uh, create software, but they can certainly describe the the end goal of this and help innovate around that. Would that be true? Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you've got domain experts, they would typically, if they're going to play a part like this, they'd either sit with inside a streamlined team as a as a as an ongoing expert, or more likely, probably act as an enabling team, helping multiple streamlined teams one after another, perhaps, to understand something about this particular domain, whatever we're working in. Um, if there's some complexity in there, um, so that those people never become a bottleneck, they never become a dependency. That they're they're explicit. The way that that enabling team is measured is in terms of the the accelerating effect it has on the, on the teams they're helping. So we're always thinking about fast flow of change, um, and and, that, and that's how that's how all, basically all the measures are, all the primary measures of effectiveness in these teams is around either their uh, speed of change or the speed of change they're able to help for, um, improve in other teams. Yeah, so kind of different motivations for why these two um, approaches to software development exist, but definitely not mutually exclusive. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the reasons that we recommended to start with domain-driven design or the principles, at least from domain-driven design, when looking at different stream boundaries is because in our experience, um, and this will ring true for you as well, I'm sure, Dee, a lot of the challenges in, in, in many organizations are down to the fact that some organizations, many organizations really don't even understand how their business or organization really works. They don't have the clarity of, of thinking, clarity of awareness to understand the different different things that come together uh, and, and, and act as different kind of streams of change, different drivers. Um, I can think of one particular organization out of several in um, customers' vows who very successful uh, business, lots of uh, big clients, um, but actually the, the people at the sea level don't really understand how the company makes money because they don't have a clear business um, picture, if you like, a, a clear, a clear, clear terminology, clear language for the, for the different things that kind of come together to to make that business work. And so, therefore, guess what? The software is a one big monolith. It's all lumped together. There's no clarity. There's no clean separation, and it's very hard to go quickly on that stuff. Uh, and so, finding techniques like DDD, which help to untangle business concepts effectively, then provide a, an opportunity to find nice, nice streams of change that can then be aligned to these concepts. And therefore, we can have a fast flow of change across multiple, multiple independent flows of change through, through the organization. It's, it's quite interesting how the, the term monolith got very kind of technical connotation as if it was just you know, some, some lack of care in how the system was developed, developed and from a technical perspective and while that that might be partially true because there's a lot of pressure in terms of deadlines and, and moving forward um 
it's often what Matthew was saying. It's this, it's sort of a business monolith, actually, not not just on on the technical side. And then you see, and the the unfortunate consequence of just thinking of this as a technical aspect is organizations that then decide, well, now we have microservices, for example, and that will we're going to be much more uh, flexible and and able to to go faster. And, and they didn't really pay attention to what Matthew was saying in terms of decoupling the business streams, understanding first and then decoupling uh, what do we need to do to achieve that. So they end up with a new architecture of the system, but still the same coupling. And then you need to have sort of projects to coordinate, you know, 10 different uh, teams working on microservices to deploy one, one change for a, a certain user persona, for example. So that you haven't really achieved the decoupling that you were looking for, and um, that that's unfortunate. That that uh, we still we still see this monolith as just technical aspect when it's a lot more than that. Yeah, and well, our uh, my new book with um, Tomas uh, Jaskula, he's you know we're we're focusing on. Um, you know, it's not really the monolith. I think monolith in general got thrown under the bus where there's nothing wrong with monolith. It's the, it's the, you know, tangle, big ball of mud mess that those often almost always fall into, but it's, it's not like monolith can't be uh, successful. And when you think of a well-modularized monolith versus microservice per entity, I I think well I would hope the three of us would choose you know maybe the monolith instead but <laughs> yeah it's all about really the the size and and the, again we go back to the focus on teams what can a team effectively work on in a, in a sustainable way where they can actually um improve the the speed while keeping the, the quality of of this piece of software they work on and how can that piece of software uh, make sense um, mostly independently from other other pieces? And that's where um, we think that should be sort of the, the unit we should be looking at, regardless if it's microservice or it's a mini monolith or whatever, uh, or a macro service. It's really about what is the, the, the team can deal with, with given their cognitive capacity, right? Um, and so that's definitely a guiding factor um, for for or should be for design decisions around how do we split uh, large systems um, is the obviously the, the business streams, but also then how much can one t- team deal with so that we don't go over their cognitive capacity and then start having all the issues of uh, you know poor quality and uh, lack of understanding of, of the software. And effectively, this becomes an architectural design principle, team-sized software. Other people have mentioned that stuff before in the past, but I think we were the first to really emphasize that as a, as a first-class architectural design principle, make sure the software does not exceed the si- effectively the size of the team. Um, if we want to go quickly, if you're happy to go really slowly, do, do other things. That's, that's cool. But you know, most organizations now are looking to go as quickly as they can with, with the software they're building because otherwise their competitors are eating their market share. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've got a lot of background now. You uh, saw this need and lack of insight and understanding around how teams should 
be formed and interact? And then what sort of gave you the idea that you should write a book about it? So back in 2013, I wrote a blog post um, exploring some diff- some ways in which the groups uh, that we talked about at the time uh, could could work together. Back in 2013, we were talking about dev and ops, development operations. These days, those that word DevOps means something different, but back then it, it meant the way in which these two groups at the time uh, might interact. And kind of came up with some Venn diagrams, overlapping responsibilities and that kind of thing. And we put together a site, uh, Manuel. Um, we, we did some work with some customers back then, quite a few different organizations around the world, um, and put together a website which became known as DevOps Topologies, exploring different different um, trade-offs effectively between different models, some, some clearly bad, some that could work well in different contexts. And this website at DevOps Topologies became uh, quite well known and quite well used. So Netflix, for example, used this uh, publicly. They, they thanked us for, for, for putting it together. It was all, it's all kind of open source um, Creative Commons. And other companies like Condé Nast International used it to, to help them think about their teams. And so this gained quite a lot of traction. And we explored, we started to explore ideas outside of just a static kind of team relationships model, bringing in lots of other dimensions like Conway's Law, like Team Cognitive Load, which incidentally, the, the cognitive load applied to teams incidentally is something that, that we that we introduced. Uh, we, there was there was almost nothing uh, in the industry before um, before we framed certainly in terms of software development before we framed it like that. Um, and but also dimensions around being able to listen for signals inside the organization that tell us that something's wrong. And we can do that because we've got defined team types and defined team interaction modes. And we can use um, kind of um, awkward interactions to tell us that something's wrong. So it ends up being a bit of a diagnostic ability. We, 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 we enable the organization to have a kind of diagnostic ability, self-diagnosis ability, by adopting uh, adopting this, this way of thinking and, and behaving. And a whole bunch of other stuff that, that is not just about how you set up your teams. It's how you turn your organization, developing software, into a kind of learning, sensing organization that can actually adapt and respond based on how it, how it perceives what's happening and how it, it can then realize that the boundaries that were good in the past are no longer good and we need to change them and therefore adapt the software architecture. So effectively, yes, it, it starts off being about teams and, and the, the book it literally has the word team in, in it, team apologies. It's really thinking about the relation to socio-technical architecture thinking about the relationship between teams and software architecture. And so bridges into uh, and should strongly influence our approach to uh, software architecture within the organization. And, um, well, I, I, I hear a lot about socio-technical architecture, and I think maybe to some people it has a, a little bit different meaning. I had a, a podcast last week and another the week before that mentioned this um, topic. And at least to some people, it means a lot about um, empathy, as in, um, you know, we're working together and I have to explain something to someone who doesn't understand it. How could I explain this in a way that my grandmother could understand it? Yeah. I mean, 
maybe that's one way of looking at it. How, how do you look at sociotechnical architecture? Um, the starting point really is this, is this mirroring effect that is characterized as Conway's law. Um, but it's been found in multiple different kind of engineering type disciplines, it's been found in software, it's been found in jet engine manufacture, in automotive manufacture, in, in a bunch of other kind of, you know, involved engineering disciplines where the communication inside the organization has a strong mirroring effect on the, on the architecture and vice versa. So if you've already got a particular kind of architecture, the likelihood is that then there's a kind of back pressure and to try and change the team structure to, to, to match that or, or rather the, the communication pathways. Um, and so effectively our starting point is, is to acknowledge that there, there is this um, sort of tendency, this sort of natural force because we're human um, and we like to communicate or, or communicate communication has, has certain effects for us. Um, this is having an effect on what we're building or what we're trying to build and run. And that realization is, I think it's much more widespread now, certainly in the last few years, but even just five or 10, certainly 10 years ago, this idea of, of this relationship between communication lines in the organization and what, kind of likely architectures are going to result is was was not something that was very very commonly thought about um and, and so just just more in general this kind of relationship between the human side of an organization and the technical side just just that being a thing that needs to be now considered is it's kind of a breakthrough that, that more and more organizations are now thinking about this stuff and i think what you're saying was quite interesting uh Vaughan, about um sort of empathy between teams and between different people working on the same socio-technical system. I, I think once the organization or people in the organization really start looking at it as a socio-technical system and this influence between the, the structures and communication lines and, and systems, then I think that leads to as a sort of consequence that people are more aware of the need for empathy. They're more aware of um, not blaming others and actually understanding, you know, why this other part of the system failed. And actually, there might be, um, uh, we're not disconnected, right? It's not that someone or some other team is working on some part of system that's totally um, isolated. So understanding what are the, the, the relationships between these different parts of the socio-technical system. And um, I think it, it just sort of naturally leads people to, uh, think more in obviously in terms of systems, um, in in terms of the relationship between teams as well, and therefore be more open to, um, you know, recognize mistakes, uh, not uh, putting blame on on others, and and having more empathy for those who maybe don't don't know uh, as much about our part of the system, and. The, the the nice thing is then you have the interaction modes we talked about. So if you identify that, look, our team has, you know, kind of strong dependency on your team because let's say maybe some code doesn't have very clear responsibilities or what have you, or maybe we're dependent at the infrastructure level, it can be anything. We now know that we could have this collaboration with a defined purpose. We want to find ways to clarify responsibilities of the different teams and, and have more um, decoupling between the two teams. So we're going to have this interaction, this collaboration, 
maybe we, you know, it might take a couple of weeks or, or a few months where we maybe we meet on a regular basis, but we have a way to uh, reason about what we need to do to improve the, the overall system actually, and also the lives of the, of the different teams and, and team members. So I think that's really uh, powerful that once we have more awareness of social technical system, this leads to, I think, better, better, more interesting behaviors that end up making our lives uh, more interesting or, or uh, better in, in the workplace as well, hopefully. Yeah. And I, I would say too, like my, in my experience, I've taught, I don't even know how many thousands of people and most of them software developers, although more often now, um, you know, business stakeholders, I guess you would say, or whoever would be the domain expert, um, which is good. But um, I often find the blame being placed on the business as, you know, software developers say, well, they won't interact with us. And yet, you know, in, in this virtual kind of world that we live in now, I mean, sometimes it's hard to get developers to turn their camera on and answer a question during a workshop, you know. And, and when, I, when I see that or the lack of interaction, I just think, you know, it's, it's understandable why business people don't want to work with them. And then there's the other extreme where it's like, okay, um, we use an applicable functor in this case. And, you know, and the business expert is like, (laughs) can we just talk about renewable energy in a manufacturing environment, you know, and so that, so there is interaction, but complete lack of empathy, you know, in, in both of those circumstances, actually. So I think as difficult as it may be to hear uh, for software developers that we are actually the ones who need to take the biggest step in the other direction. What What's your experience there? Yeah, it, it, it's, I think there's, 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 lots of, there's a lot in that. Um, effectively, what we've, what we've done... If you, if you look at it through one particular lens, what, what we've ended up doing with Teams Prodigy is so some of the patterns in the book and also a lot of the uh, templates and, and creative commons sort of open source stuff that we've got uh, online on our GitHub repository and other places. What we've effectively done is to provide some kind of um, sort of behavior templates or, or interaction guides, if you like, um, maybe like a, almost like a playbook if you if you take all of these different tools together, playbook for how teams can think about approaching other teams in the organization and, and think about interactions, think about think about that communication, make that communication more um, kind of valuable, more directed, more more purposeful. Um, and yeah, so if you squint at it from that perspective, then then that's effectively what we've ended up doing we don't really talk about it in those terms but to be honest it, it it does it does help with with that kind of you know perhaps slightly formulaic way of interacting communicating but hey better to have slightly formulaic communication than none at all right that's that's that it does seem to improve it does seem to help this is what organizations tell us and this is what organizations write about when when they're talking about using the team's apologies patterns is the language has helped the pat the, the different team types and interaction modes have really really helped have helped us have better conversations, helped us plan our roadmaps, all sorts of things like this. Yeah, so you're really purposely um, setting a goal for people to reach, 
you know, where, where you're saying, okay, you wanted this, here it is. Now you have to achieve this, right? And then, and then that becomes a very sort of goal oriented, um, behavior that, that they need to perform maybe. Yeah. It's, it's got oriented in the sense of it being kind of more purposeful. We're thinking about the purpose thinking about the purpose of our team in terms of the domains or boundary contacts. We're thinking about the purpose of the team in terms of who we're interacting with this week, which other teams we're inter- interacting with and why. So yes, there's a lot more, we're definitely making it more kind of, yeah, goal oriented in the sense of it being more directed and purposeful and almost mindful, I guess, as we're, as we're working as a team. It's almost sometimes like, um, I think, Obviously, there are many dynamics at play here in terms of you know how how business in the past has um, kind of tried to push the software development, but like you said and correctly as well, not enough openness from software developers to actually uh, listen and then have deeper conversations with business. Um, but there's also I find, in my experience at least, that um, many teams that are in software development are kind of um, have a strong fear of, of failure or fear uh, they're they're not open to say that we don't know something or that we're not able to do something because they fear there's a um, very negative association with with those kind of statements and I like Matthew was saying we're not talking in these terms in the book but what I hope at least is that by clarifying the interaction modes and saying it's okay it's okay to collaborate with this other team uh, because you want to solve a problem. Your your team has a problem that the other team might help uh, solve. Um, and also the, the facilitating mode, we're saying it's okay to, to acknowledge that there are other people with more experience that can help us and that can cut our learning uh, curve uh, by a lot by, you know, just understanding what problems we're seeing and what kind of help we need to in terms of, of knowledge and skills. Um, so I find these are sort of, my experience was sort of kind of almost taboo, right? To, to talk about that you don't know something as a software developer because there's this kind of um, unrealistic expectation that people just learn almost by magic or because they they don't sleep and they spend all their time learning about new, new, new tools and techniques. And so we need to have inside the organization if we want those kind of learning and sensing organizations the idea that we need to to learn inside, and that's only going to happen when people are, are more open to to ask for help and to ask for collaboration, and that's accepted as a normal part of, of the of the work in the organization evolution. Yeah, and there's no um, penalty for not knowing or being wrong about something the first time or even the second time, and yeah, very important. Very important. So, um, well, I'm a big fan of uh, Susanna Kaiser, and I think you are familiar yeah, with. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and she even told me, you know, she. I think you know that she's um, authoring a book in my series, and uh, maybe not too many people know about that, even though I've spent, you know, enough occasions hinting about it, and even with her present. So. I think she's quite excited about it. Um, and I think she's even going to do some teaching in your organization. What, what is the name of your kind of video training? Uh, we have a Team Topologies Academy. 
Academy. Where one of the one of the goals is actually to um, yes, we started with the team topologies um, and going more a bit more in depth into some of the areas we talk about in the book um, because we were limited in in length of the book. Um, but the idea is also then to start bringing in um, other people who like Suzanne who have done a lot of work in terms of the intersection of these different uh, areas. So domain-driven design, team topologies, worldly mapping as well. And I've, I've said this a, a couple of times on, on Twitter, and, and I mean it. I think the work of people like her and others like Nick Tune, for example, where um, they're actually, they might not be, uh, or she's not, she will become a book author, but uh, they're connecting the dots, right? So bringing together, because team topologies by itself will not solve um, all the challenges, domain-driven design by itself probably will not solve all the problems. So bring, bridging together these different um, domains and, and how does this help address the, the challenges of, of organizations today uh, more broadly. And so for our Team Topologies Academy, that's also one of our goals to to bring people who who talk about the overlap, not just Team Topologies, but the overlap with other domains and how do we combine them for, for better results. So definitely... Uh, we would love to have Susan in the academy at some point. What do you think of um, Wordly Maps or Wordly Mapping with team topologies? And we've already spoken about DDD, but Wordly Maps being about strategy, you know. That is actually, actually really interesting to see one of, one of the case studies um, from a company called Foot Asylum. They're a clothing retailer based in the UK. Um, and they they wrote a case study um, after we, we I can't remember how we we found out about them I think we we saw something online or anyway so they wrote, they wrote a case study about what they'd been doing and they they themselves had used Wardley maps and team topologies to work out what things they should build what things they should definitely not build what things they should build for now and then eventually and then quite soon expect to consume as a service from from somewhere else so that was kind of amazing to see that was pretty early on um, not long after the book was published um, and then we saw. Uh, Susanna Kaiser's stuff, combining domain-driven design, teacher body design, worldly maps together. And so there you've got the kind of strategic aspects of thinking about, hey, what should we build? So all, all the domain-driven design stuff about, you know, core supporting and generic and thinking, well, actually, where are we going to invest time and effort? Where do we need to be focusing? What should we expect to, um, okay, we've built this already, but actually should we continue to invest in this? Because actually there's a version out there provided by whichever cloud provider it is or some other SaaS product. And it speaks to the need to have quite a, a potentially radically different approach to IT and software inside the organization. We're always challenging ourselves and thinking, what is our core mission? What should be core? What should we really be focusing on? What, 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 is, um, what do we need to let go of? What do we need to, uh, what can we accept as a, as a kind of bolt on from the side, like a billing system or something like this, perhaps? Um, and... And it speaks to the role of teams because um, in team topology, we're talking about, well, what, what, what's the stream to which your streamlined team is aligned? What's your core mission effectively? What stuff might be a distraction? And therefore, might you think, well, this feels now like it's slowing us down. It feels like it's increasing our cognitive load. Therefore, we shouldn't really be doing this stuff. So then you're looking around for, um, you know, for looking around for options. And so these these three Things come together. The team topologies and body maps come together to help provide um, 
effectively, I mean, the way that Suzanne Kaiser talked about it, it looks basically like superpowers. It looks like superpowers for, for, for organizations that are building and running software to be able to, um, you know, stop building stuff, which is, is not relevant um, or consume it from outside because it's, it's better to consume it from outside. It's, it's provided as a service by a company that, that really knows what they're doing. Uh, and therefore to, to deploy limited resources to the stuff which is actually going to make a difference. And it's, that's kind of magic powers, really. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that, that's a, a, a superb combination. Um, it's not necessarily easy to do because it's, some of these techniques are, are unfamiliar to lots of people, but it, it turns out to, be, to, to, to look like a very powerful combination for, for organizations that want to make a, you know, want to differentiate. Yeah, and it doesn't even stop there. It's like, uh, okay, we've deployed this, we've made um, fast flow of change you know, work for us, but it's going to be better for um, financial reasons, economic reasons to move to the cloud, right? What do we do? What do we do now? Even those kinds of uh, transitions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and it, and it definitely lines up with our concept of um, thinnest viable platform. We're not talking about, we're not recommending building a monster platform. We're talking about keeping it as thin as possible. When we say thin, we mean the stuff that we build inside the organization. You know, there might be a whole other platform built outside, but it definitely fits in with, with, with patterns like that. Sorry, Manuel. It's fine. No, just, just mentioning, um, I think it has to do with this idea of having situational awareness, right? So I think um, Wardley talks a lot about that, understanding your 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 um, landscape understanding, you know, where you're expecting to go and, and making very um, intentful decisions and, and some hard decisions, as Matthew mentioned, in terms of what do we let go? Or like you're saying, you know, we have, we built this great product, but now uh, our competitors are in the clouds and, and it's not a differentiator anymore. So we need really to, to, um, be able to make those hard decisions, but then having this this framing with maps and team topologies and, and the main-driven design helps make that um, hopefully at least more intentional with a better kind of situational awareness of what's happening and why are we making this decision versus, you know, too late, uh, <laughs> too little, too late, where we, we realize we've, you know, um, spent so much money on this so we we, we just continue because of, you know, um, we, we have already uh, spent so much, so we don't want to make that decision. But if we have the, the awareness, if we have the tools, if you like the thinking tools to to uh, look at it from um, that landscape view, then we, those decisions become hopefully a bit easier. Thank you. And um, so what does team topologies help you do, let's say, um, be more successful with quality attributes, maybe security or other things, um, scalability, performance. What is throughput, low latency? Any? This any is a great there? question. This is a great question. And after just after we'd written the book, I wouldn't have been able to answer that question. Um, but being on this, it's now, it's now, what are we on now? It's nearly two years since the book was published. It was published 19th of September, was it? End of 2019. So it's almost two years. Now we've done a whole bunch of work with, with, with lots of organizations. Um, I've been doing a bit of 
uh, work uh, recently around um, security, application security. And there's a great book called Secure by Design, which I'm sure you probably know about, um, by all the Dans, including uh, so Daniel Terhorst-North wrote the foreword, and then the other th the three authors are all called Dan or Daniel. Anyway, it's a great book, and and it's it's the it's actually the first book in a while where that I was I was so excited about reading code um, because the way they were describing it uh, about applying domain driven design to uh, to help improve security made so much sense. I mean, I actually recognized some techniques that I'd used way back in like the early 2000s, writing Delphi 5 code. Um, I think it wasn't called that stuff then. But anyway, I, I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I remember thinking about thinking on those lines. Um, and it was a real light bulb moment for me uh, thinking in those terms that increased clarity of purpose can help with things like security. Because we, we don't have we don't have terminology. We no longer have terminology that is conflicting. We've separated out conflicting terminology. We've got kind of that bounded context or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, we've found those the, the, those those aspects of the business domain which actually need to be represented separately and split them out. And therefore, we 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 don't have a kind of uh, gray area for for security problems to 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 arise. And that was a huge light bulb moment for me. So of course. Um, you know, okay, that's mostly DDD doing that work. But if we're if we're bringing bringing in kind of DDD principles as 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 part of using team topologies, then that can help. But one thing that that I've I was very pleased to to realize with some work with um, a, a large um, telecoms company in uh, in North America that we've been doing since, for for the last fifteen months was the relationship between decoupling and reliability. So we're decoupling software and teams to keep things loosely coupled uh, because that's good architecture, uh, organizational architecture and, and software architecture. So we're doing some kind of decoupling there. Um, but by, by decoupling the, the, the application at the software level, we can take the opportunity, it's not guaranteed, but we take the opportunity to put in things that help reliability as well. So we're, we're reducing the blast radius of problems we're, we're putting in things like bulkheads and, and, and sensible retry mechanisms, things like this. So by, by doing decoupling in a sensible way, we can also increase the reliability of different parts of the system. And so that was a realization for me that actually if we apply team topologies principles with our eyes open, with an awareness of things like reliability, security, and so on, then we can actually help improve some of these quality attributes as well in the code at the same time. It's not direct influence of team bodies, but we can take the opportunity as, as, as part of an activity around kind of decoupling and thinking about um, thinking about flows of change and things to, to put these other things in place too. And that was I was I was so pleased to 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 see that happening with this with this telecoms company. And I think another another way in which team topologies uh, helps um, is is the kind of flexibility that it provides. Uh, for example, uh, we were saying earlier, we're not talking about platforms in kind of the, the old way where, well, we centralized all these functions in the platform. And so uh, the other teams, let's say the streamline teams or delivery teams, um, don't even think about it. Uh, don't even think about the the, the, the latency of, of that platform um, 
service or they, they don't think about performance because it's someone else's responsibility, right? But with team topologies, and we have an, another case study, which is quite interesting from a company called U-Switch in the UK, where um, you can actually say, well, the streamlined team is the one that's responsible for latency, performance, uh, security, reliability. Um, so it, because they have that end-to-end ownership of a given business um, service or, or domain. So uh, they are responsible, but they can use the platform to help them. And so in, in that industry example from Uswitch was quite interesting because they had mostly, they started mostly with autonomous teams. Um, and at some point, they introduced a, an infrastructure platform. And the adoption of this platform was, first of all, was not mandated on teams. They only used it if they wanted. And so that forced, the, the so that, that's aligned with the idea in team topologies. That forced actually the platform team to demonstrate the reliability, the performance aspects of their own services to sort of convince and to get more traction from the streamlined teams. Because some of these teams had done quite a really good job in terms of you know making sure that they, they, they responded to uh, problems of availability or performance in, in an effective way. And so they only adopted the platform version, if you like, uh, once they, they had sort of proof and they could see that the platform was uh, up to, to the challenge, right? They had that they, that they had um, addressed before. And by doing that, then they shifted part of their cognitive load into the platform and now they could focus more on business aspects. So it's always sort of this balancing um, approach between if we have too much cognitive load, we have too many things to worry about, then we'll likely reduce the speed of delivering customer value, right? We might be making a lot of changes and making a lot of infrastructure changes, but we're not actually going faster in terms of delivering value to the business and customers. And so we, we might want to offload some of that cognitive load in a sensible manner to the platform. But we don't, we don't have to if the platform is not up to pair, right? So that's where uh, I find team topology is quite useful. It gives us this flexibility in different situations, depending you know, what you're trying to achieve. You, you might have the responsibilities kind of um, moving or changing teams. And it's not like a, a static model that you say the platform team is the owner of the security or is the owner of, of uh, any, any other kind of quality attribute. Great. Um, okay, so maybe since you said, uh, you know, just shortly after the book was published that you gained some additional insights, um, I'm guessing that some of those things you wish you had put in the book, or maybe there are others. Can you mention we, any of those? We had to leave out, was it 30,000 words? Because... We, we basically, you know, there's a limit on the size of a book. So we've got a whole lot of stuff that we didn't include. Uh, some really nice things as well. In fact, we, we, should, we need manual. We need to go through that stuff and, uh, and, and work out what we're going to do with it. Um, there, was, there was definitely some stuff around uh, Wardley mapping that we took out. Uh, there were some things around um, sort of organizational enablers, um, things like uh, communities of practice, internal tech conferences, um, these kind of osmosis or diffusion learning opportunities. We, we didn't really have enough time to really talk about those in, in, in as much detail as we wanted. Um, uh, what else? 
did. Besides all, all that that was kind of left out of, of the book for um, publishing reasons, then um, there's also this new insights we've, we've gained through mostly consulting or hearing about other um, organizations' experience with team topologies. And effectively, one of the reasons why we started the Team Topologies Academy is to be able to kind of offer those insights to people in in you know, in, in, in a more continuous way versus well, waiting for the next edition of the book, um, which will probably happen at some point. But for now, for us to be able to kind of um, add on top of the book what, what things we've, we've, we've learned and we've seen work well or don't work well, um, that, that's why the, the Academy came up as well. Um, so there, there are different sort of, I would say, almost mini patterns perhaps we've seen working um one of the things we've realized is actually one of the, the types of teams complicated subsystem we already we said in the book, you should keep them to a minimum. It's This is not a about having a team that it has a very strong specialization in, in some, some technical or some technology. It's really about co- managing cognitive load for the streamlined teams. And so we should minimize those types of teams, should be sort of an exception. And actually, what we should really be aiming is for them to behave as sort of a mini platform team. And possibly at some point, given, you know, if if this technology or if this subsystem they provide sometimes might even become sort of a commodity, right? Maybe now we have uh, SaaS offerings or or, um, other organizations that specialize in that. So let's use that, right? And not build it ourselves anymore. So again... The, the part of the worldly mapping thinking here as well. Um, so that, that's one example where we thought, well, actually it would have been really good to <laughs> mention that in the book. But um, yeah, and, and there have been other uh, aspects. The like word that. platform causes so many problems because people have got so much baggage with with, uh, with platforms of the past. The endless Twitter discussions and conversations on LinkedIn and stuff, people getting so confused and, and getting really angry about, I don't want a platform, I want to be independent and all this. Um, so we did, we debate some of the terminology we've got in there is, is, is yeah, not necessarily the best, but when we contextualize this and, and, and when we actually explain, well, look, this is, yeah, you might call it platform, but just think of it, give it a different name, call it banana or something else. And these are the properties of this thing. That's very different from what was there before. Um, so I guess we could have, we, we could have maybe found some different words or we could have emphasized some things a bit more, uh, particularly around platform. The, the, one of the biggest challenges at adopting teams bodies that we've seen is, is, is in, in this platform because traditional, traditionally people who worked in that kind of space, particularly data or infrastructure or those kind of things, there, there's very little product management in that space. There's very little kind of agile techniques in that space. And there's a huge gap in kind of skills and awareness in 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 that in that kind of space and but it's that's okay it's a gap but it's a big opportunity big opportunity for for people with with those kind of skills to to make a massive difference inside organizations that end up building something like an internal platform to be able to make a, a big big difference and, and mm-hmm. user experience and, and developer experience professionals being able to get involved kind of an in internal uh, product and then helping the, their their colleagues as developers and other engineers to to to, to make the most of, of that of that platform offering, there's a there's a huge huge opportunity there. 
Yeah, we've seen a few really good examples and uh, of this idea of ad really adopting this idea of platform as a, as an internal product um, with proper product management, user experience, um, all those things that you would expect in in any other kind of product that is um, customer facing, and that's again that's actually one of the areas we are exploring more in our in our new academy so that we can provide more uh, in-depth um, understanding around that, look at, you know, share these good examples that we've, we've found of um, uh, organizations that are doing this well, this new thinking around platform as a product versus the old kind of sort of uh, black box uh, platform that no one really un understands or doesn't meet the, the needs of the internal team. So, um, that's actually coming up very soon on, on our Academy, this uh, platform as a product uh, course, which is really going through how do we apply this product thinking to the to the platform and why should we do that? Um, I wanted to add one more, I think, key insight for me, at least after the book was published, was um, the way the book is structured, we, we talk about the, the sensing and the learning part at the end of the book, the last chapters. And a lot of people focus on the on, on the, the four team ty types of teams and the three interaction modes, which, which are obviously critical patterns. But it's, like I said in the beginning, it's really about how do we use those, how do we evolve over time. That's where the sort of superpower is. And it's uh, as if a lot of people kind of stop in the, in the patterns that don't think about how do we actually make sense of this in an evolutionary way. So I wish we had maybe given even more emphasis, emphasis to that part in the beginning of the book, um, because it, that's really, you, you're going to be missing a lot if we're just trying to map what we have now to the team types and, and interactions, because it's, it's about evolving and adapting. Yeah, when I write a book, you know, first of all, the first book that was published, um, Implementing Domain-Driven Design, I, I had no idea how many pages I wanted to write. It was just a matter of, I've, I've sort of fallen back to this, a book is as long as it says it should be, right? <laughs> Meaning that the book kind of tells you what's missing or early reviewers tell you what's missing. Um, 30,000 words. That's maybe 75 pages or more. That's a lot of pages to leave out. Well, we, we had a hard limit on um, the, our publisher was like, this kind of book needs to have a maximum of this number of pages. And, and at the time, the cost of paper was going up and is even higher now. And so there's all these kind of dynamics involved and it had to be out by a certain date and blah, blah, blah. So we're like, okay, fine. And we had it printed in color as well. We were super happy that the, the, the IT revolution, the publisher uh, went along with that because that's one of the things that, you know, the, the, the diagramming style that we came up with is very, very memorable. It actually came, conveys a lot of information because we've got a flow of change in there. We wanted to make sure the, the, the colors were recognizable. The colors worked for people with, um, with color vision impairment. They worked uh, if they were in black and white. All, we did a lot of work on the diagrams because they convey an awful lot of information. So we were super happy that we're, we're happy to cut 30,000 words so that we could have color and, yeah, and then we, we well, can get it out in, in time. So yeah. it was, and yeah, I'm, and, and, I'm actually dealing with that uh, trade off right now because print yeah. will be black and white. And that's the only way mm, uh, my yeah. publisher can make that work. But the ebook, you know, and, and they have a great 
ebook print bundle, right? So you want to see the color? Just look at the ebook. But anyway, yes, I, I agree. It would be so nice to have four color. But, but book. to be to be fair with with publisher and the editors at Idea Revolution, they were uh, really uh, great. So there was economic aspect of the length of the of the book, but I think it also forced us to kind of really condense and distill some of the ideas and really make hard decisions. It's just like we're talking about before, make hard decisions about what we need to let go. This is not core. Um, and so you need to, to make those, those trade-offs. But if you would read the first draft of the book, you'd probably be uh, uh, quite uh, bored. Maybe you wouldn't get to halfway compared to what, what came out when the editors uh, from IT Revolution really helped us to you know, turn it into more of, a, of, a, of an experience for the reader to go through um, and build up the knowledge and, and all, the, all that because it was looking pretty academic in the first draft. So um, yeah. I, I think it wouldn't have been as, as successful as it was uh, the book if, if it wasn't for, for the editors. Yeah, I understand that quite well. The IDDD book was, um, well, I was even told, I was told by multiple potential publishers, wow, your book is very academic. And uh, finally, Addison Wesley said, um, you know, how would you rate your book in terms of, you know, expertise level uh, between one and 10? And I said, probably like seven to nine. And they said, no, 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 it's going to be four to seven. <laughs> well, that changed a lot, right? And it added pages. So <laughs> that's interesting. How, how many pages were you? I don't remember the count of pages in your book. Total number of pages is three, 216. Oh, oh, wow. 216. Yeah. Well, that is quite readable. My distilled book is maybe 160 pages, and you can get through that in a weekend easily, if not one day. So, well, so what, what happens now in the future? Will there be maybe a second edition? Doesn't sound like you have enough uh, pages for all those words. Maybe... Um, a second volume or so what's likely to happen is not a second edition exactly but a new book in a couple of years um, we're having some discussions with IT Revolution uh, publishers about that we're not sure exactly the focus um, but what I can definitely say is people are starting to use the team to these ideas outside of software people are already doing this we've not even talked about it ourselves particularly people are already looking at the patterns and going whoo what happens if we apply that to sales or marketing or legal or uh, IT support? So I literally had two, two separate conversations with two separate organizations today where they said where they, they were planning to do exactly this already. Um, so maybe the second book would be applying these ideas outside of, of, a, of a software context and, and looking at the implementation. It's not guaranteed, but possible. That's certainly one thing which, which would be appealing, seems to be appealing already in the market. So are you two going to purchase the island together or separate islands? I, I'm just wondering. How, no, I'm already on an island. I'm, I'm, well, I'm in the UK, so we're yeah, not well, yeah. But I'm thinking more like, uh, yeah, anyway. Simon Brown's really on an island. I like he is, to, yeah. yeah. I, I asked uh, recently in another interview, so when you and Simon get together, does he surf to London or do you surf to Jersey? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, well, 
gentlemen, thank you very much. It's been uh, very nice talking with you. I don't know if I'm interrupting maybe some last words you would like to say. We've been a bit more than an hour, so some people want to listen to this on, you know, one and a half or two times uh, speed, but anything, any wrap, wrap, wrapping up words? Um, so we've been very pleased with the reception of Teams Prodies. We've been super pleased with the, the way in which lots of organizations have been sharing their experience using it. That's been really important for us. And uh, we're always looking for new you know, case studies and, and people sharing details about how you know, challenges as well as, as successes. Um, so, you know, uh, if you hear this and, you, and you've been using Teams Prodies, please get in touch. Uh, We'd love to find some interesting case studies to, to put on our website. Um, and Manuel, you talk about the academy. Yeah, well, well, I just wanted to say, should mention the, the website teamtopologies.com is really the, the reference to find what's new. Uh, people sometimes want to hear about new case studies, and that's where we're publishing them uh, on, on teamtopologies.com. And obviously, there's, there's the book and there's the academy for kind of more... Um, in-depth learning, but we also have a lot of free resources on, on teamtopologies.com. So um, it's just the, the reference if you want to learn more, if, if you want to get started. We have also some cool infographics that make it easy to share more broadly with people who are not familiar with Team Topology. So um, it was really, it, for us, it's really about getting the ideas and helping teams to, you know, get to, to a better place and organizations, obviously. So um, in whatever way that that knowledge is, is can be consumed, that we're, we're happy to, to promote that. Well, thank you both. Um, it's been very nice to speak with you for this time, and you've shared a lot with us, much more to think about and look forward to in the future. So we wish you all the best, and hopefully we can take up this conversation again after more work is done. Thank you, Ron. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.